Welcome to School of PE Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Miller, and I'm so glad that you could join me this week. We are going to discuss topics about FE, PE, and SE, and we're also going to answer questions that will help students prepare for their exams. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another exciting episode of the SOPE Weekly Podcast. I'm Chris Miller, and today I got a Mr. Jeter Menya, PE, coming out to talk to us today about a rather interesting subject here. So uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and welcome him in, and maybe, uh, Jeter, you can tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Sure. I just want to uh, correct something. Uh, not a PE, yeah, so I am an EIT. Okay. Uh, uh, coming to become a PE, uh, hopefully this year. Fantastic. Well, we're happy to be along with you for the journey. Um, so I'm sure you have a lot to offer to our audience today. Like I said, the uh, topic is interesting. I'll introduce the topic here in just a moment. But uh, Jeter, if you want, just please uh, give us a little background to tell us a little about who you are. Yes. Uh, so my name is Jeter. Um, I went to school in the City College of New York. I graduated with a bachelor of engineering, um, specifically in environmental engineering. We are focused in water resources. Um, I graduated in 2017. After that, I've been uh, working toward my goal, which essentially is becoming a, prof a professional engineer. So at the moment, I work for a consulting firm. I work under the site assessment and remediation department here in New York City. And, and I am very excited, you know, I'm very excited about this, uh, that I choose this industry. Yeah, we're, we're glad to have you today. So New York City College. So I, I believe one of our instructors teaches there. I don't know if you had him, maybe Amir Mousa. Uh, water resources. No, he's a civil. So I didn't know maybe if he came across, maybe I had to take one of his classes or not. Um, I took professors, uh, fellows, which is well known. Dr. Fellows been teaching since 1970s environmental engineering. Oh, very and nice. Also, prof Professor Vasiliaris, but uh, most are sound familiar. That name sound familiar. I think it's more into the civil engineering department. Correct. And I, I was more focused on the geology, environmental science, and wastewater treatment design. Very so nice. It, I, I was not involved too much into the, the structural transportation and. Okay construction engineering, but I was more focused in, in environmental engineering. Sounds good, but good to have you out of the Big Apple. So today's topic is creativity and emotional intelligence and work experience. Might sound French to a lot of people. I know it did for me this morning when I was looking at the uh, questions. So let's just first start off and let me just ask you, you know, when it comes to creativity and emotional intelligence, what is creativity? Okay, creativity, you know, when we think about creativity, we think we associate it into the artistic part. Mm -hmm. However, creativity plays a big role in in any field, in any discipline. So, you know, the, the definition of creativity is the the use of the, our imagination, and and we typically associate it with the art. However, uh, we need a lot of creativity, especially nowadays, in order to generate uh, a lot of innovation in, in science. For example, coming out with a vaccine and uh, in order to fight any other world challenges. So creativity plays a big role in any of our either science field and any other art field, but creativity, again, is applicable to any uh, industry and any uh, field of study as well. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more. 
you know, you're right. You know, when you think of creativity, you think of creative writing or maybe art. You remember, I remember playing with Legos, you know, how creative could you be to build this Lego structure? But, you know, you're right. You know, you see it everywhere every day. You know, sometimes, you know, let's just take, for example, and you can understand this being in the Big Apple traffic, right? Congestion in New York City. I'm from L.A., so there's a lot of traffic congestion. And sometimes you got to think outside of the box or be a little creative on a workaround of how to get to work. You know, exactly. the, out in L.A., the 405 freeway could be backed up. So you're like, huh. I got to get creative and take some side streets or, you know, maybe you're working on a project at work and you're like, huh, the traditional method just might not work. And so you have to get a little creative to uh, find a solution to whatever issue you might be facing. So I think creativity applies to everybody and any in anything, really. So um, it's it's interesting to you know kind of talk to you about it and, and kind of take us outside of the traditional box of, OK, creativity applies to art or it applies to you know writing. So it's, it's good to see that you can apply it, you know, in engineering as well. So, you know, the other half of the topic, you know, creativity and emotional intelligence. So let's go ahead. Let's have you define it. What is emotional intelligence? Okay. Emotional intelligence in, in my own world is the wisdom that we all have in, inside of us. So I know some people might say, oh, I'm not a creative person, but I think we all, we all have creativity and we all have emotional intelligence. So uh, the emotional intelligence is what actually push us to to be creative and to, to innovate. And so the, the emotional intelligence, I, I believe we all have it. You know, it's a, it's a trait that is probably hidden in all of us. No, I agree. So, you know, what's the relationship? Is there a difference between the two or are they more kind of like synonymous one, one another? They go hand in hand. Um, I think the emotional intelligence leads to creativity. Uh, I think there are some overlaps and some similarity, but uh, I think we need more, I think, into like going to more into the neuroscience in order to, to explain the biological behaviors and, and how the brain works in terms of your, your emotions and plays a, plays, that's how it plays a, a role. So, the difference, I don't really think of, there might be so many different, but I, I believe there is um, similarity in them. So having a high emotional intelligence uh, value can typically lead to high creativity. There's that a positive correlation. Sure, no, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for sharing that for us. So, you know, I remember growing up, you know, sometimes, you know, you might have an art project in school and you're like, you know, you, you know, your parents are like, hey, did you do your homework tonight? You finished that art project. Like, ah, no, you know, I just can't do it. Why not? Well, I'm not creative. I, you know, and I remember that wasn't an excuse for me. You know, parents were like, <laughs> hey, you figure out a way to get it done. Or, or sometimes, you know, you're um, you're talking with a friend or a colleague and you kind of, you know, they're sharing maybe some emotional story or something. Maybe they had a bad day or something and and you're just not able to, I guess, sympathize or empathize with that person and so you were just like eh, you know i'm not an emotional person so i can't really understand where you're coming from so let's say you know you're not very creative or maybe you don't consider yourself an emotional person but you want to become those so is there anything that you can do to kind of increase or enhance those traits oh definitely definitely number one is to have passion about it be passionate about the topic and try to engage um and and just read about it you know reading reading helps a lot and as well as like listening to some motivational speech mm -hmm. and and just think about like uh 
how can how can I push myself to the next level? So um, that's that's what I that's what I do as a practice. You know, I I ask myself questions. I I try to engage as much as possible. And and once you have that, once you have the passion about it, then then everything I think will come naturally to you. No, I, I agree. I think passion is a driving factor for a lot of different things. Whether it's you know, hey, you want to get your FE and you're let's say working two jobs and you're trying to finish your senior year at uh, college and you're like, well, if you have the passion or you it helps you get motivated to be able to, okay, I work the two jobs, I can still do it, I can still study for my FE and I can pass it. And then now it's time to get your PE and you're like, oh, you know, I'm working, I now I have a family. But if you have the passion to obtain that PE, you're going to find a way to do it. And I think that applies to just about anything. Um, work ethic plays a, a, a big role in it as well. Um, so, you know, we kind of covered some, or we kind of had a small discussion about, you know, creativity and emotional intelligence. And and so now let's talk a little bit about your work experience. Um, I know you said you're into environmental engineering. So, you know, could you perhaps um, describe what happened during an environmental site investigation? Sure. So let's 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 start from uh, one step uh, before that. So question is, what happened during a site investigation? Correct. Correct. So before a, a site investigation was conducted, we, as environmental consultants and environmental engineers, we perform a what we call a phase one environmental site assessment or a phase one ESA. And and once it has been determined that that the site con contains some type of contamination, mm -hmm. typically we identify some recognized environmental conditions. And after that, we lead to the site investigation. So, so that in the site investigation, what we typically do is we analyze the subsurface and we, are, we look at the different type of environmental media, such as air, uh, groundwater, and soil. And depends on the development plan, depends on your proposal that you send to, to your client, you might analyze other things like indoor air, indoor air samples, um, we might analyze sediments, we might analyze surface water. So, so the whole thing is to, to analyze the environmental media. And, and once we do that, that tells us what levels of contamination is present at the site. Mm -hmm. and, and, and then from there, we, we move into you know, either remedial ob, um, action of, uh, objectives. And uh, depends on the regulatory agency, we come out with a remedial investigation. All right. That, no, that makes sense. So thanks for, you know, kind of walking us through those different steps there. So when it comes to, you know, inspecting erosion and sedimentation, is there something specific that you're looking at or looking for? Sure. Yes. So during a uh, um, inspection for uh, typically look at a, we have a ch checklist. Mm -hmm. And the checklist was basically like a, Going over and checking out if this if this ponding on the side if and is there any type of stock is the stockpile on this is covered you know is we we basically go over a checklist mostly things about housekeeping mm -hmm. and making sure that your construction site let's say it's not creating a lot of runoff and it's impacting let's say surface water. Mm -hmm. So we, we just go over a checklist and, and there's, there's a questionnaire there that, that asks about ponding, are there, is, is this ponding at the entrance? Is, 
is the control zone stabilization entrance stabilized, mm -hmm. the stockpile cover, and we just go over the checklist. Okay, makes sense. Kind of like Santa, right? Got a list, checking it twice, right? Um, right. <laughs> very good. So, you know, I, I came across, you know, as I was looking through the questions for today, I was like, what in the heck is a, what are underground storage tanks and what are they used for? Okay, great questions. So the definition of an underground storage tank is, is any any type any tank of vessels that contain at least ten percent of its volume on the ground. So they, they have different capacity and, and they are constructed based on different materials. And and we typically define underground storage tanks uh gasoline stations mm -hmm. or any other facilities um that use some type of uh, heating system okay so you can have a facility let's say you have a daycare center and then you might have um you supply your heat through um using your fuel oil so you might have a underground short tank underneath all right very good that makes sense so what type of um underground storage tank management needs to be done and when do they need to be closed great question so in terms of management you know they they have to have some type of leaking detection system in it. They have to have cathodic protection system to prevent uh, corrosion to happen. And depends on the year that the tank is installed, they have a certain criteria. And in order to either to be closed, close the tank, there are two ways we can do that. Either one, we can close the tank in place, which means we, we remove the fluids, we clean it up to regulatory standards, and then we fill it up with so much slurry concrete in it. Or we can remove the tank and dispose it at a scrap metal facility. So uh, I can tell you from my experience, I, I was I worked in several sites for some of our clients where we were changing the, we're doing something called boiler conversion, which okay. basically you wanna change your heating system from, from gas, from oil to natural gas. So in order to do that, you need to close your tank. So you have to you have to engage a an approved contractor for that. From the, the state is involved on in that aspect. And once you remove it, um, you can just you have to make sure that it's clean, that it's it's met all the requirements, and 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 then just know uh, the contractor will provide an affidavit, and then from there we submit a underground storage tank closure report to the. In this, in this case, the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation, and and they do all the regulatory compliance aspect after that. That makes sense. That's, that's pretty detailed. Thank you for that. So, you know, one of the things that I do here at School of PE is um, I help um, put together the courses for the engineering review courses. You know, maybe we're going to put together a, you know, fire protection exam review course for those going after their PE and, and fire protection. And it's interesting when it comes to PE environmental, you know, we have several great instructors, right, that teach these courses. And, and there's a subject on the um, exam, but also one of the subjects for our course is called Site Assessment and Remediation. That's and my area. There we go. So interesting is like, you know, I always can find an instructor that's more than happy to talk about water treatment, you know, wastewater, things like that. But Site Assessment and Remediation, the Site Assessment side seems to be, I don't want to call it tolerable, but it, it seems to be something that people don't mind taking on. But when it comes to the remediation, they we, people feel like they want to pass the hot potato. So tell me a little bit about what is remediation? 
Great, yeah. The remediation um, is a discipline that, that has evolved in the last 20 plus years. And, and, it, and it's basically a, a, the use of our of science and technologies and engineering and mathematics, basically, in order to clean up a site. When we think about remediation, we think about some type of contaminant removal. So it, it is a, it's a, it is a new, new discipline of in engineering and and it has different remediation technologies. And, uh, typically we have, you know, what they call it in situ technologies that mm -hmm. you remove your contaminants and create other source. And, and there are other ones like more frequent that we do, in, which is upside and disposal, which you have a contaminated land and one excavate and, and, and then send it to a landfill, which is the least preferred method to use. Instead, we you know we can do other things like chemical. We can do in situ soil stabilization and and other chemical uh, treatments and thermal treatment as well. Oh, hey, thanks for clearing that up because I've been I've been working you know I've been putting courses together with School PPI since uh, 2012, and uh, we've been I think we probably had PE environmental since then for the exam review. But yeah, remediation's just been like that big elephant in the room. So oh, yeah. thank you for helping remove that elephant. Um, so, you know, when we talk about pollution, there's several types you can think of or discuss, right? A lot of people talk about air pollution, um, especially being from Southern California, where, you know, the air in L.A. County is not the greatest. So air pollution is pretty big. Uh, one thing that I don't talk or hear much about in Southern California is, is, is pollution in stormwater. So maybe being on the East Coast, this might be a little more prevalent. So what are some of the ways that people can prevent pollution in stormwater? Uh, great question. So the key is to have a SWIP, what we call it, a stormwater pollution prevention plan in place and use uh, what we call best management practices. Sure. That's how we can minimize the, the runoff and the pollution to the stormwater. In, in New York City, for example, we have a combined sewer system where the stormwater and the water from from the uh, sewage to get connected in one single pipe. And that's a, and that's a big, big issue. So that's why we try to have what we call best management practices, which in, can, can include either structural or non-structural best management practice. All right, no, that makes sense. So interesting here is, uh, you know, when you think of like, um, like an oil spill or maybe there's a chemical spill or, and people are always talking about, you know, ways to address and clean up these uh, chemical spills, whether it's an oil spill in the ocean or maybe uh, a chemical plant had an accident, some kind of chemical kind of escaped. So, you know, what do you what happens to all the contaminated materials or soil once it's been gathered? What do you do with it all? Well, well what do we do with the contaminated material once once it's Perfect. been gathered? Correct. Basically, you know, it has, it has to be treated, you know. It has to be treated, you know, when, when we think about that specific case, we have to think about spill pollution control countermeasure, and that go, goes into more into like regulations, mm -hmm. to the, the Clean Water Act and, and the Oil Pollution Act. So the way we have to do that is, is, is by using some type of remediation technology. You have to understand, you have, we have to sample it and see what, what actually contains. And once you know what it is, once you know your composition of your, of your or let's call it in this case like a waste or combination, then we can analyze and we can apply the, the appropriate treatment. 
Yeah, that makes sense. So, so let's say um, you're brought on site for a, a chemical cleanup and uh, it's a client brought you on board and said, hey, you know, we need assistance cleaning up this chemical, whether it's a spill or whatever it happens to be contamination. And they're like, we just need you to hurry up and get it cleaned up. One of the first things you have to do, I'm assuming, is probably, like you mentioned, test it, right? How important is it to know, to test it, to see what you're dealing with when it comes to maybe the approaches that you take to clean it up? Like if you assume it might be chemical A, you might approach it in this manner, but then, you know, if it's chemical B, you'll take this uh, pathway. Yes, that's important to do a waste profile and understand the toxicological effect and how that was going to affect the public health and how that's going to affect the employee who's going to be working on. So that's why we have to, to analyze them first to understand what type of contaminants are present. So we can, we can have a, a you know, uh, plan. We can have a, a health and safety plan in place. We can have the necessary uh, remediation technology to apply and, and making sure that we keep, we keep into our clients' needs and, and budget. No, that makes sense. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, depending on which, I guess, uh, contaminants you find present might change how you might address cleaning it up. That's absolutely right. Yes, this is different from if we have a uh, pollinated clinator by phenols or PCV, if you have VTEX compound, uh, the type of remediation that has to be in place is going to be very really different. Also depends where it is your contamination. Is, is, is the contamination in the first five feet or is the contamination all the way down to 75 feet below ground surface. So that's a good point. That's a good that, point. It, it depends either what type of contaminant you have, what kind of characteristic we have, and also where the contamination is. Is your contamination in what we what they call in hydro in, in hydrogeology? We have something like an aquifer. Mm -hmm. So is is your contaminant in your battle zone, which is your trap zone, or is your contaminant in your saturated zone? So depending where your contaminant is you might have to use a different type of technology. So that's why we have to understand the chemistry part to know where your contaminant is. If it's something like greater than, greater than water or less than water, is that something that's going to flow versus going, something that's going to sink? So, you know, that, like, that, that goes more into the technical area of remediation. <laughs> that makes sense. It's kind of nice to see, you know, it's funny. It's like, it's amazing to see how technology has become such a prevalent I guess, um, tool in so many different fields, right? I mean, you know, technology probably plays a very large uh, part in, you know, site assessment or remediation, just about any type of engineering. So, you know, we've had a lot of fun today kind of talking about, you know, we talked about creativity, emotional intelligence. We got to learn a little bit about your work experience and in, in environmental engineering. So now, you know, I'd like to have a little bit of fun, you know, kind of okay. take our um, hard hats off and kind of <laughs> up and relax a little bit. So, I'm curious, and maybe the audience is too, is what what caused you to have an interest in engineering and being like, hey, uh, this I'm going to be an engineer? Great questions. I, I always was, in, was impressed. I originally uh, was studying more civil engineering, so I always was impressed about infrastructure, especially bridges and high rises. So I, have, I always had a curiosity, and, and as a child, I was I typically play around, I, I take things out, and then I started like having the curiosity, like how, how these things going to work. So I always had an interest on that and, and having, you know, an interest in math and science, you know, I, I, pursue, I pursue engineering. It's funny, it almost seems like Legos had a little bit of a, 
uh, influence on you as well. I was talking to an engineer yesterday too. I'm like, what got you down this path? He's like, to be honest with you, when I was a kid, I loved playing with Legos. I loved to see what I could build outside of the box. So, you know, you mentioned civil engineering, but what drew you to environmental engineering? Yes, uh, I, um, coming from a, uh, I say it was a third world country. I'm originally from the Dominican Republic and, and growing up, I saw a lot of, you know, children playing with contact, you know, with soils and, and later on understanding like, why are these kids being born with some type of uh, defect, defect, like birth defects. So I was always curious about that. And, and, and then uh, for me, I, I think when I think about environmental engineering, I, I care about the people. So it's two things we have to think about. It's like public health and, and the environment. So I, I think environmental engineering is, is the discipline that will focus on that on those things, like how uh, how we can have our community safe and, and, and how can can we protect the environment from, from all the different uh, phenomena that can happen, you know, protecting from floral, from sea level rises, from any type of hazards that might be present. Uh, that's admirable. I mean, thanks for sharing that story with me. Uh, that's, that's really nice. You know, like you saw, you know, some tragedies growing up and you wanted to see how you could make a difference. That's, that's really neat. Um, so, you know, you, you got through your FE and right. now your goal is to obtain your PE. So do you have an, uh, maybe like a, a roadmap or have you mapped out a study plan or preparations of how you're going to tackle the PE? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I already have the NCWS practice exam. So I I let out the download the specification and, and basically understand that the, the P environment is, is more specific, you know, it has six different knowledge areas we know. Mm -hmm. And and right now I I actually registered for the exam to take in April in the state of New Jersey. Oh, very nice. So um, I'm thinking uh joining the based on my research I I have seen that School of PE that do, do a great job putting the lectures together. So I'm considering to do a one-month prep course where I can get the qualitative part because I have noticed that the exam, they only, they only, they only ask about how to solve a specific problem, let's say some type of Manning's equation, some hydraulics problem. They also want to know like if you understand regulations, if you understand the qualitative part, like what. So um, for that, I will, I will get a prep course, like a one-month prep course from School of PE. <laughs> based, based, on, based on my research, I, I see that, that School of PE do a great job, especially preparing for the PE exam. Well, we'd love to have you on board for your journey. I'll tell you this, the PE environmental, you know, I've worked closely with the instructors and they're great, great set of instructors for PE environmental. Um, not only are they really good at preparing students for the exam, they genuinely have a passion for the success of their students. So they, they go that extra mile to, to make sure that students are grasping the material so that they're prepared for the exam. So um, living in the Big Apple, right? You're living in New York. Um, I got to ask you, are you a Yankees fan or a Mets fan? Which way are you going? Uh, I, I'm only to a Yankee fan. <laughs> All right. You know, it's funny when um, when Spencer was telling me, hey, you know, Gina Menia is on the uh, schedule for today. I'm like, I was looking at your name. And I was like, how do you pronounce 
the first name and he just typed me Jeter. I'm like, hey, Derek Jeter. Oh, yeah. Okay. My my favorite player. Yeah, he's a class act for sure. Yeah, Yankees. Hopefully they're you know they'll be back. Hopefully Aaron Judge and Stanton can uh, stay healthy next season. Um, but um, Jeter, I'd love to have you back for another episode of you know we didn't even touch break the surface of creativity and emotional intelligence that we can get into. So I'd love to have you back um, for the, everyone out there, you know, enjoy the rest of your week, but uh, Jeter, it was a pleasure, you know, speaking with you and thank you so much for, you know, coming out here and uh, hanging out with me. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. My pleasure.